It's awesome to see you today, and I just want to begin by saying a word of thanks to Jeffrey. Man, it's great to hear that your experience at NBCC was so transformational. And listen, thank you for inviting your parents. I want to just say hello to mom and dad. Uh, guys, uh, Jeffrey uh, found the experience to be so amazing that he reached out and invited his parents, and I'm told they're watching us every week. So I'm just so grateful. Uh, they're all watching us from the other side of the country. That's awesome. Listen, here's the word for all of us. If you're finding this experience at NBCC to be incredible and transformational, please don't keep it to yourself. Spread the word. Send a link out. Invite people to join you online and uh, participate in what God is doing here and what God is doing in your life. Let us pray. God, we need you to pour out your spirit in a powerful and special way right now, if you would. And so we're totally dependent upon you. Work miracles. I ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Listen, if you were with us last week, you know that I, uh, in the middle of my series, uh, Greater Things, uh, because I'm confident that God wants to do greater things, especially through those of us who are Jesus followers and those who would consider to be Jesus followers, even in this difficult time, or should I say especially in this difficult time, uh, I took some time to kind of talk through the whys behind all of the protests, including the violence that's springing forth from the brutal death of Mr. George Floyd. And I took some time to talk through what are some things that we can do and we should do as Jesus followers to try to make a difference in this world. And uh, so uh, if you missed last week's message, uh, please go check it out. Uh, this week, I'm going to take a break from Acts, and I'm just going to lean into a text that I've been living with for the last few weeks, and uh, it's here in the Gospel of John. Let me give you a quick context before I read the text. Listen, uh, Mary's brother Lazarus all of a sudden got sick, and then he was gone. He died. They had reached out to Jesus, who uh, they were very close to, and they asked Jesus to come help, and they didn't hear anything from him. Jesus shows up here four days after Lazarus has been buried. And this is the scene that takes place. When Mary arrived and saw Jesus, she fell at his feet and said, Lord, if only you had been here, my brother would not have died. When Jesus, when Jesus saw her weeping and saw the other people wailing, uh, he, a deep anger welled up within him and he was deeply troubled. Where have you put him? He asked them. They told him, Lord, come see. Then Jesus wept. The people who were standing nearby said, see how much he loved him? Jesus was still angry as he arrived at the tomb, a cave with a stone rolled across his entrance. And so Jesus said, uh, roll the stone aside. And then he looked up to heaven and said, Father, thank you for hearing me. You always hear me. At the end of that prayer, the text says, then Jesus shouted, Lazarus, come out. And the dead man, Lazarus, came out, his hands and feet bound in grave clothes, and his face wrapped in a head cloth. And Jesus told them, unwrap him and let him go. There is the reading. On last week, I laid out several steps that all of us can follow that Jesus models in this text. 
if we would dare to reach out to four or five people who are different from us and have some conversations around the stories of pain and race in their lives. And if you're not African-American, I just want to say the obvious, you should be reaching out to African-Americans. And if you are African-American, you should be reaching out to people who are not like you and have some real discussions around uh, the journey of race here in America as you have experienced it. And when you do, uh, the four things that I laid out should be practice, which Jesus models. The first is you should listen. In this text, we find Jesus listening as Mary lays out her pain. Secondly, uh, you should lament. In this text, we find Jesus weeping with those who are weeping, lamenting. Thirdly, in this text, we find Jesus walking alongside of those who are headed towards the graveyard in a, time, in, a, in, in a place of great grief and pain. He couldn't walk in their shoes, but he was walking with them. That's a great metaphor for learning. You need to be willing to lean in and to learn. And then lastly, we find Jesus just before the miracle praying. And then in partnership with others around there, he overturns what looks like permanent reality. And he who was dead comes out of the grave. And so he teaches us uh, how to lift one another up in prayer and how to act together for change. Amazing principles that we ought to practice. Today, however, for the rest of this message, I want to talk about three hidden dangers that will, if we are not aware of them, will undermine our attempt to have constructive conversations across race. And I want to challenge you uh, both to become aware and to trust the Holy Spirit as you lean in. The first is captured by the word trauma. As a matter of fact, uh, in these conversations is what I want to call hidden trauma. Last weekend, after I finished sharing a little bit about how, what my experience of race in America has been, I got home and I told my wife, Rhonda, I felt kind of like that little boy uh, like I did when I was a little boy in middle school, seventh grade. I used to wear a knit hat, uh, partly because it was cold, but also outside to cover the scars. My head was, had pronounced scars uh, from an accident that happened when I was a baby. And I would even keep the cap on when I got into the classroom. Inevitably, the teacher would say, take off your cap. And whenever I would remove the cap, I would immediately begin to feel exposed, embarrassed, a little shame, inadequate, remarkably different than anybody else in the room. Matter of fact, I felt all of that because by removing my cap, I exposed not just my scars, but my trauma. And part of what you need to know if you're going to have conversations with African Americans across race is that when you ask us to share with you our stories about race in America, you're asking us to pull off our caps and expose our traumas. And I want to suggest that that should shape the sensitivity with which you approach that conversation. Now, Jesus models this in a really powerful way. You know, Mary comes, and if you look at the context, there's wailing and there's weeping. And, she, and she's really coming at Jesus. She's, she's, she says, and the key word here is only, Lord, if you had only been here, 
Keep in mind they had reached out to him. Keep in mind that Mary and Lazarus and Elizabeth's house was the house that Jesus stayed in in Bethany whenever he would come to Jerusalem over the course of three years. And, 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 and they had seen him work so many miracles. And so they reach out and he doesn't respond and he doesn't show up. Partly what Mary is saying is, Lord, if you had only been here, my brother would have been alive. In other words, where were you? In other words, why did you let us down? Or perhaps, better yet, Lord, you're at fault for part of the pain that I'm feeling. Because you weren't here, he died. And Jesus models for us first how to listen. And in the listening, watch this. He does not become defensive. He does not deflect. He does not take it personal. Because he recognizes what kind of conversation he's having with Mary. He's not having an academic conversation where he makes three points, she makes three points. He's having a conversation with her about her pain. And the only appropriate response for Jesus is to lament. So the text says that anger wells up in him that, and he becomes deeply troubled. She's angry about the loss of her brother. He's angry about the loss of her brother. She's weeping over the loss of her brother. He's weeping. The text later says he wept. He's weeping over the loss of her brother. And by his lamenting, then becomes, uh, it, it becomes obvious that he loves Because the folks standing around says, see how he loved him, meaning Lazarus. And so, when you're having conversations about people's trauma, that's not the time to become defensive or to become academic in your discussion. It is the time, I tell you, it is the time to lean in and lament. Some of the most healing notes that Rhonda and I have received over the course of the last couple of weeks have come from people who have been lamenting with us. One note came to Rhonda from a colleague that she hadn't heard from in 10 years that she had former colleagues she used to work with in Boston. The note went something like this, dear Rhonda, I'm just writing to tell you that I am so sorry about what you and your family are going through. I'm not an African-American, so I, 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 I don't fully get it the way you, you get it, he says. But I know that what I see is wrong. I am so terribly sorry. And I'm trying to figure out what I might be able to do to help. Here's a friend who acknowledges the pain and affirms it and laments. See how he loves I got another uh, note from one of our partners who wrote me. She says, listen, I want you to know, Pastor, I'm praying for you and your family. That in my own way, I'm hurting with you guys. I'm so sorry. And then she says, you know, upon making an assessment of what's going on in my life, I realize that I have some prejudices that I wasn't even aware of. And I want you to know, Pastor, I'm going to work on those prejudices. But in the meantime, I'm praying for your family. And I'm so sorry for the pain. Oh, how she loved us. When you're in a situation of trauma, what you need is love. Not an argument, not a debate, not trying to figure out uh, in the conversation about trauma what's the right public policy. You need lamenting. You need love. 
be sensitive to the trauma. Let me say a word to African Americans inside of this. Uh, I, I at least want to give uh, Mary credit. She, 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 she pulled a cap off. <laughs> she, she exposed the trauma to Jesus, and that set in motion a chain reaction that led to an unbelievable miracle with her brother Lazarus. And so I want to say to you guys, listen, I know you've pulled your caps off before, but I believe this is a unique time. I think the Holy Spirit is at work all across the world. I think God is on the move. And I just want to suggest, yes, you pick the time, you pick the place, you make sure you feel safe. But I want to challenge you, pull the cap off. Align yourself with the work of the Spirit and share your, your story, your trauma. I'm believing that God will, will use it to, to continue to set in motion a chain reaction that will lead to unbelievable miracles. That's how the Spirit of God works. The second I want to call out in this moment is what I, I, I label as unspoken skepticism. You've got to be aware that hidden beneath the surface is some unspoken skepticism. We see it implied at least in the text. Mary says, if only you had been here, my brother would not have died. And, and of course, you remember the background as I've described it. Uh, I, I, I can kind of read between the lines. She's saying, look, Jesus, you know, for three years we saw you teaching about how you're the expression of the love of the Father. We saw you work all kinds of miracles. You did all that. And guess what? We fed you and housed you in our own home. And, and, and when we needed you the most, you didn't show up. So now, Jesus, I'm kind of feeling like maybe you were using us. I just think that there's some implied skepticism about his love and his reliability from Mary in the text. You know, Jesus doesn't respond to it because he understands, watch this, the context of her skepticism. That her skepticism is shaped by her experience of trauma. And he gets the context. Now, let me just say a word to uh, my African-American brothers and sisters. Listen, we've got to be aware of our skepticism and also the context. Listen, for those of you who are not African-Americans, you need to get this, that uh, from time to time, we have found ourselves in conversations about race only to discover that the person on the other side of the conversation actually uses that conversation to turn it towards an affirmation of some position, some political position that she or he has, or an affirmation of some stereotype that they have about, uh, about us as a people, and we feel used in the context. I just need you to know that. You wouldn't be aware of that. And yet I want to say to my African-American brothers and sisters, despite that reality, I want to challenge you. Name your skepticism and take a step of faith anyhow. I was reading and I read a tweet from a person who said, if I haven't heard from you in the past three or four months and now you're reaching out to me, don't call me. <laughs> Sign a petition. Show up at a protest. Don't call me. I understood the skepticism that the person was expressing in the text, in the tweet. But the person was really missing the bigger point. See, here's what I think I know about a lot of, uh, of my white brothers and sisters in particularly, because I've dialogued with them. That if somebody reaches out to us after watching what's going on on TV, 
and we haven't heard from them for two or three months and they feel uh, motivated to reach out to us, that's a big deal. Number one, because it's a scary deal. They're scared to death. They're scared that if they reach out and if they say the wrong thing, uh, the conversation will blow up, the relationship will blow up, and if they push past all of that and reach out anyhow, that's progress. It's progress mostly in their own hearts. It means that the Spirit of God is at work. And we've got to want to discern that and we want to lean into that because that's the, that's the context for a possible miracle. So be aware of the context and content of our skepticism. Now, if you're not African-American, if you're one of my white or Asian or other brothers and sisters who are not African-American, you need to be able to name your skepticism and be aware of the context of your skepticism. And I want to suggest that there, there, there are two levels of context for skepticism for people who are not African-American. The first is the absence of relationship. The absence of relationships. And the absence of relationship uh, plays out in some pretty dramatic ways. One of my remarkable staff members here at NBCC is a woman by the name of Sumi Kim. She, she, she leads our kids' ministries, doing a fabulous job. The other day, she was sharing her own perspective about this whole issue of race and African Americans and racial justice. And she shared boldly that she grew up in Korea. And as she grew up in Korea, the only images and the only thing she knew about African Americans was what she saw through the TV. And mostly, it was images of African Americans either being slaves or criminals. And whenever her parents and grandparents would talk about African Americans, they would talk about us through that set of lens. She said as a teenager, she remembers seeing on TV the whole ordeal about the L.A. riots and African-Americans really kind of uh, uh, exercising uh, destruction of property and violence and, uh, against a lot of Korean stores that was in the neighborhood. She said she knew nothing about uh, the whole beating of Rodney King or she definitely didn't know anything about the Asian woman who had shot and killed an African-American girl. Totally missed that racial piece of it. She said ultimately she came to uh, the States in the 2000s and she came as a nurse and she brought her own skepticism about who we were as a people. She brought her own prejudices about, about what to expect when she dealt with African Americans. But then as a nurse, she worked with African American nurses and doctors and suddenly her mind ex was, was exploded uh, and she began to realize, you know what, African Americans are, are beautiful people, are brilliant people, compassionate people, and all those stereotypes disappeared. Why? Because of the presence of relationships, deep relationships. Let me tell you something that's pretty funny. Back in the day when I was in Boston in the heart of a horrible winter, my niece had come to visit us from California, 28-year-old niece, and we wanted something from the grocery store. We both jumped into our, my SUV and drove over to the store. It was a baby blue SUV. And I left the light on and the car running. She stayed in to stay warm. 
I hustled out through that winter, Boston winter, and went to the store, got what I needed, came out. And I think it was a little disoriented. I may have come out the wrong door. I looked, I couldn't find the vehicle. And then I saw it, I saw it. My, my, my baby blue SUV, uh, 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 SUV sitting right over there, with lights on, the car's running. I ran as fast as I could, slammed open the door, jumped into the seat, only discovered that there was a white guy sitting in the passenger seat. He went, ah! And of course, I went, ah! <laughs> and then I realized I was in the wrong car, guys. <laughs> then I said, oh, I'm super sorry. I'm in the wrong car, and I got out. <laughs> and a few minutes later, we passed each other as both of us was exiting the parking lot. And I said, see, see, I have a car just like yours. <laughs> well, why were we screaming? Well, we were screaming because in the absence of relationships, the only thing you have between you are stereotypes. And all he saw was a, was a tall black man coming, running and jumping in his car. It was like, ah! And all I saw was a white guy sitting uh, uninvited in the passenger seat screaming, ah! Stereotypes. And the only thing for those stereotypes to go away is relationships. It is the Spirit of God that's inviting us to take risk across race and not just conversate, but let the conversation be the beginning of new relationship opportunities for you, for me. The second thing that, that defines the skepticism that separates African Americans from others is the lived experience of systemic racism. If you're African American, you have lived through systemic racism a thousand times. If you're not African American, uh, there's a good chance that you haven't experienced it at all. It's the absence of that experience that allows you the luxury to question, if you will, if I tell you about a, an experience that I've called racist, it allows you the luxury to question it because at the end of the day, check it out, you've never lived a day as a black man or a black woman in America. That's a luxury. It is the context for skepticism. Now, Pastor John Orberg, and I want to encourage you to go to Menlo website, Menlo Church website, and hear his message on racism and racial justice and faith from last weekend. It's amazing. He's, he preached to uh, a, a congregation, thousands, I don't know, five, 10,000 people, 60% white and Asian. And, and, and he was incredible in terms of how he talked about this issue. And in that message, he shares um, that when he was uh, years ago, that he and his family came home and there was a horrible smell in the house and it, it was everywhere. It was in the kitchen. It was in the living room. It was in the clothes closet. It was just everywhere. They couldn't figure out what it was. They called the police. They called the fire department. Finally, they figured out it was some skunks that had crawled under the crawl, crawl place in the house. And it messed up the house. And he said that scent had gotten into everything. And he used that to explain that Dr. Condoleezza Rice calls racism the, 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 the birth defect of America. And she points out that when, when, when the Europeans arrived at Plymouth Rock, uh, there were Africans with them, but only one of them was in chains. It was the Africans. And John asked the question, Pastor Orberg said, what, what kind of mind game do you have to play on yourself and everybody else in order to put other human beings in bondage and keep them in chattel bondage, in brutal bondage for over 400 years? You have to convince yourself that these people are less than. And, and, and that, that, that skunk that's in the American house has let out a scent called racism and 
and it soaks into every institution and every fabric. And it soaks into us, by the way. All of us contend with it one way or the other. He made that poem. I got an email from an Asian friend of mine, a partner of NBCC. And he said that historically, he hadn't really understood this notion of systemic racism until he got into a small, his life group, small group, uh, with some other African-Americans. I want you to notice the text. I find this to be powerful coming out of the text. Jesus says, where have you laid the body of Lazarus? And the response is, Lord, come and see. Come and walk with us. I find this fascinating. It's a great metaphor for learning because while Jesus couldn't walk in their shoes, he could walk in relationship with them. And you just have to know that that walk to the graveyard was a walk of pain, was a walk of grief. And he walks in solidarity and in relationship with them. It's a wonderful metaphor for learning. And this Asian American uh, member and partner of NBCC says that's exactly what happened as he did life together with these African Americans in his small group, which we call a life group. He, he began to learn more and more about their experiences, their experiences with, for example, the police. And, and, and he said it was so eye-opening. He says he's had some discrimination experiences in his life, but after hearing their stories and walking with them in relationship, he has concluded that the scale of discrimination that the, his African-American friends have experienced uh, is radically different than his. They're really talking about two different things. You see, that because they walked together. I want to challenge those of you to find people to walk together with. Across. That's one of the values of being in a church because you can get in small groups like what we do. You can even do it virtually. We have over 50 virtual small groups that you can have relationship with people across race and you can begin to walk with them. It's transformational. It will dislodge the context of your skepticism. And lastly, I want to call out the first danger you have to be aware of is hidden trauma. The second danger that you need to be aware of is unspoken skepticism. And the third danger that you really need to be aware of is displaced, lean in now, guilt. Why is it that Jesus didn't take Mary's kind of subtle accusations and sometimes not so subtle personal? Why didn't he find it? Why didn't he have the need to defend himself? Why, why didn't we see him deflecting? Why didn't we see him explaining to Mary, I can't believe you said that. I, you know how much I love you. You know how faithful I am. Why, don't, why is all that missing from the text? It's because Jesus knew that what was being suggested was not true about him. He, he understood the context in which it was coming and he knew that he had no need to assume that false guilt. He knew he was faithful. He knew he loved them. And he also knew that in a, in a matter of days he was going to end up dying on the cross for all of them and all of us shedding his blood. So he had absolutely nothing to prove. False guilt. Can you, can you say displaced guilt? Now let me just say a word to my African-American brothers and sisters. There is a question that's lingering in the air, and we have to be aware of how we engage this question. Here is the question. Are all white people responsible for the death of Mr. George Floyd? Are all white people responsible 
for the innumerable experiences of racism that, that, that I have experienced and, and our African-American people have experienced. Are all white people responsible for all the different ways that racism has soaked into the very fabric and institutions of this country? Because racism, by definition, is prejudice plus infrastructural power, right? Institutional power to back it up. And some of us, African-Americans, would be tempted to say yes. Either you're directly responsible or you're indirectly responsible. You're complicit. But I, I want to push back on that. I want to push back hard on that notion in this message. And, and I want to call in the room some of my friends. I want to call in the room John Kingston, who was a dear friend of mine. We go back 20 years ago. He just recently ran for uh, the Republican seat, Senate seat in Massachusetts. We've been there for each other for years. I, I want to call in the room uh, my good friend, uh, Pastor George Hinneman, who is the pastor of University Presbyterian Church in Seattle, Washington. We, weekly, every week, we're comparing notes about messages and exchanging the details of our lives. I, I want to call in the room a retired Presbyterian pastor, Stan Johnson, who for 15 years, every week, we met for breakfast for 15 years. It says something about the depth of our relationship. I want to call in the room Pastor Dan Monroe, who has partnered with me to help give birth to NBCC and make this a place of Christ's love for everybody. Now, if you ask me, do I think it's their fault what happened to George, Mr. George Floyd or institutional racism? I'm going to tell you no. As a matter of fact, I would say to all of them, gather around me and say, listen, guys, here's what I want you to hear from me. It's not your fault, but it is your moment. It's not your fault, but it is your opportunity. It's not your fault, but it is your shared responsibility. And I would say to each one of them that God causes you, calls you to, 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 to accept the responsibility of using the power and privilege that comes with being who you are in America and to operate in your sphere to push back against the sin of racism wherever you find it. So I would, I would celebrate John Kingston, for example, who, who makes sure that his staff is diverse and that his lead person is an African-American who's leading all of his policy work. I, I would celebrate John Kingston, for example, who just recently wrote a powerful article in Christianity Today calling out racism in this country against, against the backdrop of all kinds of people who would have would preferred him not to do it. My gosh. Using his authority in his spear. I'd call out Pastor Dan Monroe who, who works his heart out every day to make sure that regardless of who you are across race that you experience the love of God in the life of this church. And he is the first person to lead by saying, I don't understand what it means to be black, but I want to learn with tears coming down his cheeks and inspiring others to follow his lead. He's, he's utilizing his influence in his spear. So what is your spear? This is what God is talking to somebody right now. Look at your spear. You're, are, are you operative in the political world, in the economic world, in education? I don't know. Are you a corporate leader? Uh, are, are you a hiring manager? How can you push back against the sin of racism? Maybe it's just about having the right conversation with your granddaddy or your grandkids or your siblings. 
your call is to push back. It's not your fault. Most of you. There's certainly some people who are directly to the guy who put his knee on Mr. Floyd's death, for sure. Next. But it is our shared responsibility. Let me end here. <laughs> Jesus gets to the graveyard, right? And uh, the miracle is a communal miracle. Jesus is getting ready to, to, to perform the impossible. But before he can do it, he says to some, some of the folk, would you please move the stone? So he needs some people to move the stone. That, that, the, the obstacle that was standing in the way of the miracle had to be moved. There's some people in, in culture, some of you, you are stone movers. You need to move stones. And then Jesus steps forward, and with the authority that he has over heaven and earth, he calls forth a dead man, and he overturns what looks like permanent reality, and the dead man comes out, and life comes out of death, and justice comes out of injustice. And then he says, but he's still tied up. Somebody's got to take his grave clothes off. Somebody's got to unwrap him, and some other people come to unwrap him. You may, it may be part of your responsibility to help untangle the consequences of injustice justice in the life of some people, you see. Uh, 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 Jesus is the only one who can call out, but the rest of us, we have responsibility. All of us are in this thing together. Do you see the point? <laughs> let, let me try to wrap it. Let me, let me sew this thing up. Do you know that it was the re- that was calling Lazarus forth that led the officials to decide they were going to kill Jesus? And when they were getting ready to make that decision later on in this chapter, somebody said, you might not want to kill him. Because it's been prophesied that if you kill him through his death and resurrection, he's going to bring believers together from all over the world, from all kinds of sectors. And they're going to be a powerhouse that you can't handle. This is why I would say to those of you who are not African Americans, uh, 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 but you're looking to be a bridge and an expression of healing in this world, run to Jesus. Claim him as Lord and Savior and follow what he models in the world as he shows you how to listen, to lament, to learn, to lift up in prayer, to act together with brothers and sisters and push back against injustice wherever you find it. Learn and lean in as he is Lord and Savior and the highest standard of your life. But if you're African American, I would say run to Jesus. Let him be Lord and Savior. You can trust him. You know why you can trust him? because he would later be arrested by the Roman soldiers and beaten all night long. He understands police brutality. You can trust him. Uh, He would ultimately, an innocent man, be found guilty. Come on now. In the court, (laughs) he would experience injustice in the justice system. He gets it. You can trust him. Uh, Run to Jesus. Claim him as Lord and Savior in the highest standard of your life because ultimately he was sentenced to capital punishment as he died on Calvary's cross. But the good news is that death and injustice and the wrong of the universe could not keep him down. Carlisle said it like this, truth pressed to the earth will rise again. And if your and my life are entangled, are entangled with his life, yes, injustice will strike us. Yes, death will strike us. Yes, institutional racism will come against us. But we will forever keep rising again again and again and again in his power to reshape history. And here is the ultimate power of the church. This is what makes me excited, that Jesus is the one that you run to if you are part of the community that's looking to be a part of healing. 
But Jesus is also the one that you run to if you're the part of the community who's been wounded and you're looking for healing. And together in the body of Christ, Jesus redeems us. Come on now. He binds us together with the blood that he shed from Calvary's cross. He makes us one family. He transforms us across our differences into an irrefutable powerhouse for the kingdom of God in the world. That's why I say, trust Jesus, follow him, and let him show us how to change the world. Amen. Now, I'm going to encourage you to take a next step. There's a connection card attached to the website and in our app. Your first step may be to say yes to Jesus. You may want to just say yes to him right now. But under the response to the message, I want to encourage you to check yes. Here's what you're checking yes to. I'll do my part. I'll do my part. I'll find four or five people and begin to build a relationship with across race. And I'll practice to connect four principles. And I'll look out for those landmines I talked about. I'll do my part. I'm going to find, use my power in my sphere to push back against the sin of racism while celebrating the redemption of Jesus in all of our lives. I'll see you next week. God bless you. Listen, thank you so very much for being with us today. And a couple of really quick things. Number one, if you're trying to find some really good resources to help you think through across race, uh, this whole issue around racial justice and your place in it, check our website. We've got some resources there for you. Secondly, make sure you are inviting friends to join you here next weekend. It's Father's Day and you don't want to miss it. Thirdly, this coming Friday night, we're going to be celebrating Juneteenth Day. Uh, I'm going to host a panel with uh, Pastor Jason Reynolds from one of the historic African-American churches in the area and uh, Pastor Steve Clifford from one of the large white evangelical churches in the area. And we're going to have a conversation about faith and race. You do not want to miss it. Juneteenth is the, is the day that most African-Americans and others celebrate uh, the Emancipation Proclamation signing. So uh, I look forward to seeing you there. And lastly... Uh, check out the question that's on the screen. Take a picture of it. I want you to wrestle with it. What's one step you can take in your sphere of influence to push back against the sin of racism? All right, see you next weekend.